tell stories so grand of this vast, timeless land, and they call it Sunday with Macca. Uh, Bruce is in Keith, is that right, or is it Keith in Bruce? Who knows? Good morning, Macca, how you going? Yeah, Bruce heading to Keith. I should be then going to Donald, but I'm not. Uh, just heading from Adelaide back to Melbourne where I work. I'm on the road, so it's pretty quiet. What's work? Uh, police. But I think I might be heading back into the lion's lair. I might be stuck there a little while. Uh, last year was eight months. I was uh, marooned in Melbourne for about eight months, so that was uh, that was quite a quite an experience. What's it like being a police officer? I mean, I know there's been fines issued here in New South Wales, and I suppose the same thing happens in in Melbourne for people who break the law. Yeah, just a member of uniform, so we do the full sort of gamut of jobs. I think with the with the COVID and with the enforcement, it's the egregious. Like the removals people who you know, just knew they yeah. ha- knew they had it and instead they went off. That was in New South Wales somewhere, I think. Yeah, the deliberate breaches are the ones where you know they get prosecuted with fines and things. I think uh, certainly we get a lot of warnings because people generally are trying to do the right thing, and we get a lot of people at the counter asking questions about you know what they can and can't do, and we try and give them the best direction we can. And if we can't answer their questions, we we direct them to the COVID hotline and uh, some to answer their uh, answer their queries. But uh, generally, people are very very good doing the right thing and they're, they're making a big effort and you've got to admire the Australian resilience. People have really stuck to the task, I think, of trying to trying to get through this thing. Good luck and nice to talk to you, Bruce. Yeah, it's all good. It's all good. Thanks, Megan. There's a radio show that Australians all know. If you're rich or you ain't got a cracker. They tell stories so grand of this vast, timeless land and they call it Sunday with Macca. They all call it Sunday with Macca. Yeah, they all call it Sunday with Macca. Get on with it, Macca. Uh, good morning. Welcome to the program. Lots of interesting people this morning we will talk to. We've already talked to three three lovely phone calls. Troy from Cumming City. Was it Cumming City? Cumming City in uh, China. He's teaching physics over there, but he's been there for 10 years. He phoned us six years ago and he told us about life in China and why he was there and things like that. He seemed very matter-of-fact, didn't he, Kel? Just, uh, yeah, here I am in China. I asked him about the angst. He said, I've never had any argy-bargy from people over there. Um, He said many people speak uh, English. He's been trying to learn Chinese, he said, but there's all sorts of, you know, simplified Chinese and you know, two sorts of writing. So there's various, you know, regional differences where you go someplace and you can't understand the people. So he's found that very difficult. Um, But there you go. That was Troy. And then Penny rang from Canberra. Uh, It's a lovely call. Uh, The listeners here are just great. Penny was interesting. She was in Canberra, springs in the air. It's been cold in Canberra, of course, and we were talking about COVID. There's no COVID down in uh, in Canberra, which is really great. I'd love to be there. I'd love to be anywhere where there's no COVID. We're instructed that we'll have to learn to live with COVID, uh, which I think is regrettable. But anyway, we might talk about that this morning too. Philip was in Cowra. He's going Cowra, but he was on the way to um, down to the Snowy, and he's going cross. There's a cross country skiing event in. Um, in the snowy, I think starts on Wednesday. Cross country skiing's always fascinated me that you could get out there and away from the madding crowd and very quiet and a wonderful thing to do with yourself on your own or indeed with a friend or two. Wouldn't that be interesting? Mm. Um, 
And, and you know, look, I'll tell you what. I was going through my old books. Or well, not, not my old books, my mum's old books. And there's a book here called All's Well. It's a lovely, intelligent old book. It says, All's Well by the author of Honour Bright. I said, all right. I looked on the spine, All's Well by the author of Honour Bright. And it's printed by... Then I opened it and it said, um, Superior, I think it's Superior, S-U-P with a little thing there. So it's in lovely writing done with a pen, a quill. Superior Public School Glee presented to Selwyn Probert, that's my grandpa. First prize, highest marks, low second class. I don't know what that is. Mr Cornish signed that in 1895. And then it says, and the title page, All's Well by the author of Honour Blight, Two Blackbirds, etc., etc. London, Dudley, Dudley, Dudley. I think it's 1893 the book was printed. But the author never gets a Guernsey. I looked, I looked all through the book, All's Well by the author of all's well yeah oh yes him yeah her oh yes no and i wondered why that was maybe they've got they had a i don't i didn't know why maybe it was because um they had a room where people used to write books for them and they didn't give them royalties this is your job write a book and we'll call that all's well and start this is how it starts this is an old book i mean another time no covid they were about to get they were about to get spanish flu but that's another story all's well We never thought for a moment that Father would agree to our going. It was much too good even to be thought of. I think the postman gave a louder rap than usual when he brought that letter and the big envelope pushed through the little glass door of the letterbox and fell out onto the doormat, as if it was in a tremendous hurry to get to us. Just like Larry himself, who used to generally come into the house knocking his head over against the door and tumbling over the carpet. For this big letter was from our old friend Larry, who had left school two years ago to go to sea with his father, Captain Brady. (laughs) <laughs> that's all wealth and that's by uh, who wrote that Kill, um, uh, the author of Honour Bright that's right yeah I don't somebody will know why they didn't get the author didn't get a Guernsey but but there you go lots of things this morning and we'll talk to you uh, 1300 700 222 at gmail.com uh, it's lovely to have your company if you're locked down well I don't know is there any any answer to the whole thing um, just, yes, be mindful, look after yourself, look after others, um, and take care and do what you're instructed and get vaccinated and maybe it'll go away. And if it goes away, we should keep it away. That's what I reckon. Um, I don't really want to live with COVID. I heard a lady say the other day, she was a lady, um, I think she was a a professor somewhere. She said, even when, even when you're 80 or 90% injected, something like that, say 80%, uh, there will still be times when we'll need to be locked down and there will probably still be times when and various situations where we'll have to wear masks. Uh, anyway, we'll uh, talk to you. G'day, this is Maka. Hello, Maka. It's Christine Hawkins down in Barrel these days. That's a blast from the past. Christine Hawkins, how is are it? you? <laughs> I'm really well. How are you? We're not in lockdown either. It's beautiful down here. Wow. Yeah, I bet it is. And quite fresh, brisk. Um, yes, I haven't looked at the temperature this morning, but it's probably about three. Yeah, I just spoke to Philip before. He was up um, from Bathurst, but he said he's been skiing around Oberon. And what do you, what do you call that place, Cool? Um, um, I don't know, what do you call it? I wrote it down somewhere, but just around Oberon, he said there was quite a... So he's been skiing there, and he's going down to Threadbow or somewhere for a cross-country event. How are you, Christine Hawkins? Yeah. I'm really, really well. It's lovely to hear your voice. Thank you. 
Now, um, I was I was listening to Philip talk about St Peter's Church, and we were married in St Peter's. Right. And and um and it, the the organ was reputed to have been played by Napoleon. For our wedding, it was played by my then um, music teacher, who was a lovely fellow called Greg Quinlevin, who moved to Tasmania, and I don't know where he is now, uh, but I don't think well, it ever been played so well. He might be listening. I'll just inform people. If, if, do you realise that some people only get up at 7 o'clock, Christine? But anyway, uh, Philip rang us um, about half past six, uh, something like that, and and he, he told us what he was doing going skiing, but he said um, he used to be a photographer, and he, he did a book with a bloke who was writing a book about, I think, church organs, and he ta- talked about this church organ in Watson's around Watson's Bay and he said mm. it's reputed to have been donated by by Napoleon um and maybe the chronology's not right but you say it may not have been donated by Napoleon but certainly the yeah. rumor is that Napoleon played it is that right yeah yeah but we we can't work out how that could have happened because the organ was built in 1796 in England for an English aristocrat it was Napoleon died in 1821 on in, in, wherever he was locked up. Saint Helena. Um, yeah. Then the organ didn't leave England until it came to Australia in the um, early the next cent early the next that century. Yeah. So so it's unlikely. And the only time Napoleon ever actually went to England, he was a prisoner. Um, and of course, the British and the French were at war yeah. at that time. So, so it's a, it's they you still know, are, nice story, but it's it's quite <laughs> unlikely. Yeah, they probably still are. Yeah. Well, in their minds, they probably still are. <laughs> a, they, it's a bit like Australia and New Zealand. They, you know, with some sort of animosity, isn't there, between England and France? Yeah, although I think it's changed over the years. The yeah. English are great francophiles, and and I think in the villages in regional France, they've put a lot of money in. And saved a lot of those villages, according to some of the French that I met when I was over there last time. Um, so you know they have they have a sort of a um, you know respectful, <laughs> crutching um, like or dislike of one another. Yes, Christine, like Heather rang last week and she said she was in this little um, little village and they have a um, a festival, not a wattle festival, they call it a mimosa festival. Mimosa, yeah, uh, yeah and um, which is like a wattle and. They had a Parc du Botany Bay there and all those sort of things. So the French and Australia, but Napoleon was a big time and Josephine, she had a little garden in her in her estate with kangaroos. So the French must have taken a kangaroo or two back when they were exploring around Australia like Baudin and those sort of people. It's it's all very interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. I think I think um, yeah the fact there's a, we know a lot about our history which is fortunate but the fact the facts get a bit mythologised sometimes. <laughs> they do. Well, never let the truth get in the way. <laughs> Good story. No, no. <laughs> that's that's the story. What are you doing with yourself, Christine Hawkins? Oh, same as same as work like a dog, <laughs> but in in. <laughs> Haven't been to Sydney since June when they went into lockdown. Mm. Um, but I must say, even and I was there the last day. Uh, oh, I think I think when pandemonium was actually breaking out. But but Sydney's been rather empty as a city since the beginning of last year. It's very sad. Yep. And the numbers were beginning to build up in the city again um, this year. So, but there was still I don't know. I think not more than about a third of the people in the city who were ever there, and you must see that. Mm. And, um, and of so course, Melbourne to see a city like that so yeah, so empty, it just breaks your heart. Yeah, and Melbourne's had six lockdowns. Um, and oh, yeah. as a guest of mine will say this morning, you never get used to it. No, no, 
And and down here, we're, while we're unaffected by lockdown, everyone's wearing masks. Um, mm. We're required to wear them indoors in retail premises, but not in the street. But mm. people still wear them in the street. And, um, you know, the lady from Canberra was talking about how hygiene in Canberra, well, it's like that everywhere. And it has been since COVID started. Mm. Um, everywhere you go now, tables are wiped down. People wipe down all the handrails in the trains yeah. all the time. Um, I think it's made people conscious of personal hygiene in a way that might have been forgotten by yes, some. that's what I said to um, her. Which, which is not all bad. No, yeah. I think it, it should have been de rigueur, as I said, you know, washing your hands and all yeah, those absolutely. sort of things. And they were f- forgotten, you know, and the flu was spread, uh, you know, always being spread the flu, a dangerous uh, infection, yeah. the flu. But um, people would come to yeah. work with the flu and now they're encouraged not to come to work if they've got the slightest sniffle. And that should be the case anyway, because why do you want to spread your diseases to somebody else? So um, maybe that's been good, but um, I just hope it goes away, Christine. I don't think I, I listened to Brad, Brad Hazard, who's the New South Wales Health Minister yesterday, and somebody said, you know, will it get back down to zero um, because the cases keep rising? Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, well, that's what we hope. And um, and then, but the headline yesterday from the Premier said, uh, learn to live with COVID. And I thought that's the last thing I want to do. But anyway, maybe that's inevitable. Who knows? Yeah. Well, as far as it'd be good to get some expert medical to, people to talk to, but as far as I know, you can't actually kill a virus. I mean, we all still have, when we're born, a triple antigen vaccination that includes with diphtheria and whooping cough. Mm. Um, you know, and 100 years later, we're still having that. So those viruses are still still here with us. And COVID's so nasty. It's much nastier, I think, than, yeah. than some of them. Yeah, it's I've... likely it won't go away. I've got an expert this morning uh, talking to us about quad to eight. So, um, yeah, stay tuned. I'll see what... See what he says. Um, yeah, that would be good. All right. But, Chris- yeah, it's pretty pretty nasty, and I feel sorry for everyone who's in lockdown, especially people living by themselves or living in dreadful circumstances who have lost their jobs. Yes. And- I think it's very, very easy from Canberra to lose sight of that. And when you're old and elderly and you haven't seen your grandkids and, you know, there's not a lot of time oh, yes. left in life, all those sorts of things. Um, heartbreaking. It is. It is. Uh, so, I don't know. And, and it doesn't seem, as you said, so long ago when – uh, most of Australia was free of it, um, and then that person came in from overseas, and then whooshed out of the blue. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And just tragic. Yep, yeah. Christine, uh, we'll have to get together um, when I can get that'd out be, of. That'd be lovely. <laughs> when, I can, when I can travel more than five k's, we'll get together. Lovely I'll let to you hear. know when I'm coming to Sydney. You too. Take care, both of you. Really <laughs> nice to talk to you. Good on you. Bye. Okay. Bye, Maka. <laughs> This is the All Over News. You think it's been cold and sometimes wet this winter? And by recent years it probably has, but it pales into insignificance when compared to temperatures experienced in Antarctica. Our correspondent Trevor Luff, an Antarctician from 50 years ago, rang to tell us about the new Antarctic research vessel, the RSV Noyena, replacing the Aurora Australis, which was decommissioned in March 2020 and also to tell us about the ship's bell, a most important part of any sailing vessel. The bell was cast at Oles Engineering in Maryborough, Queensland, but the ship itself, the Noyena, was built in Romania and will arrive in Hobart later this year. But back to the Antarctic. Trevor Love. Down to the Antarctic, it, uh, you know, the temperatures are the coldest ever recorded, minus 89.5 degrees C. You've been down there? Oh, yes. I went at, that, um, at Mawson in 1970. 
And what's down, that? What's it like when it's minus seventy or so? Have you experienced I've, that? I've been down to minus forties, and it's just horribly, horribly cold. There's nothing on your toes, your fingers, your face, everything. It's just relentless cold. But we do have uh, good clothing and that. But if you're in a tractor train, you just freeze in that cabin. If you're on a dog trip, you, at least you're, you're running when you you don't ride on the sleds. The dogs stop and they look around and they say, get off and walk like we are. <laughs> and so you always run with the dogs. And that, I was lucky to be there in the era of the dogs. Yeah, so it's cold. And the dogs, the dogs cope with it? Oh, yes, yeah. They're amazing creatures, aren't they? They are, the huskies, yes. Yes. Do they wear little boots or anything or what's No, they live outside in the cold. They just curl up in a ball. If there's a a blizzard, you have to go and find their chain and pull them out every few hours so they don't suffocate. What's the name of the new research vessel? The uh, the RSV Noyina, N-U-Y-I-N-A, which is the from the... um, Palo Akani uh, Aboriginal, Tasmanian Aboriginal language, uh-huh. meaning Southern Lights, the RSV Noyena Research Vessel, 25,500 tons in weight. So and the bell made by Owls Engineering, eh? Owls Engineering. And Good. I might, must also point out that the the metal, the, the gun metal, or yeah. G1 as it's called, 88102, that's copper, tin and zinc, that is, has been donated by Hayes uh, Metal Supplies in New Zealand, free of charge, and also uh, Hayes lovely? Metals here in uh, Sydney. So it's just been a wonderful exercise, and it's about an 18 kilo bell. We cast it two weeks ago, and two young apprentices cast that bell, Kaylin uh, Simpson and Lucky Hanson. They, lovely story. they took the bell from a raw casting and then developed one to suit our needs to go on to the bridge of the Noena. Thanks for telling Australia about it, Trevor. Good on you, mate. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Whilst Australia's Olympic athletes have spent the last three or four years gearing up for their big moment at Tokyo, the same could be said for Andrew Henderson. He's the census executive director, and he too has spent the last four years or so gearing up for his big moment that comes this Tuesday evening. Just like the athletes, this is his Olympics. He's on the line. Andrew Henderson, good morning. Good morning, Mega. Nervous, confident, just like an athlete? No thought of cancelling it because of the lockdown? Uh, we've been watching Canada. They're just winding up their census now as we speak, and it's gone well over there. UK did theirs, and it went okay. And we basically planned the Australian census to be pretty well contact-free anyway, so most people get their instructions through the mail, um, be able to do it online, or they'll be able to ring up and order a paper form, get it in the mail, send it back in the mail. So, you know, we're pushing ahead. Well, I remember New Zealand after the, the earthquakes, they, they called their census off and it was another two years before they could do it because just the sheer scale of the infrastructure, logistics, contractors, it's, it's you know, and the policy people are saying to us, look, it's really important. We can't move ahead with five-year-old data. We need a, a fresh snapshot of Australia. So, and look, the forms are coming in. You know, we, we had over a million forms last week, by the end of last week. So, you know, we're confident that we'll get a good result. No thought of putting a form in the letterbox like uh, other times? So we've done that in rural areas and regional areas where, where it's allowed by uh, health authorities. But, um, and, and most of the time in the cities anyway, the plan was always to, to get 75% of people online. So we're sending them instructions to get online in the first instance, but they can opt for a paper, paper option if they want it. So go back a couple of years ago when we didn't have COVID and you were cruising along to your next census, then all of a sudden COVID happens and lockdowns start. 
What sort of a rethink did that make for you, or did you just go ahead? Well, we did a major. We had a major test plan for October last year, uh, 100,000 households across Australia, and we went ahead with that test. And Victoria was in complete lockdown then, and uh, Sydney was on restrictions, and we had in Adelaide a, a short, sharp lockdown, and the test went well. So we thought, you know, okay, the evidence is there that we we can push ahead with this. And what about statistical error? So we have a 95% response rate, 96% response rate maker generally. Um, and generally people are okay with the census. The difference I think is we've got a lot of experience over the years working with multicultural communities, with different communities, um, you know, the vulnerable, homeless, those, those sorts of people, and with the organisations that support them. And they get out there and they really get the message to their people, look, you've got to do this for yourselves. You're not doing it for the government. You're doing it for your family and your community and to, to get better services. So we, we, we get a really fantastic response. As I said at the beginning, do you get a gold medal at the at the end of this, or you go on a holiday, or what happens, Andrew? Oh, look, I'm I'm looking forward to getting in the four wheel drive and going bush, mate. I can tell you that for nothing. But you're but you're locked down, aren't you? I'm locked down at the moment. Number six for me. I'm in Melbourne, so and and you don't get used to it. Believe me, Andrew. Good luck for Tuesday night. I'm sure it'll be a great success. Thanks, mate. It's great talking, mate. And that's Andrew Henderson, Census Executive Director. That's Tuesday night. You can ring up if you want a form and uh, you don't have to get it in on Tuesday night. They'll take it any time, if you know what I mean. We've been talking about COVID <coughs> this morning. What else do you talk about? I noticed a headline in the uh, uh, yesterday's paper which says, Learn to Live with COVID uh, by the Premier. And there was a time when there was no COVID in Australia, wasn't there, really? And then the, this other virus got in. By gee, I don't know. Um, on the line, I've got um, Professor Robert Boy. He's an epidemiologist, infectious diseases at the University of Sydney. I wanted to talk to him. Good morning, Robert. Good morning, Matthew. Good to be with you. Yeah, you too. Um, a, a lot of things I wanted to ask you about. The first thing was um, really about I've rung up a couple of... Um, medical centres in the last week or two to get a jab and I rang up uh, one and I said uh, look I wanted to get a jab and she said sweetheart what uh, which one do you are you eligible for I said I don't know but I don't care which one I get and she told me that I'd have to wait two weeks or something same thing with another one a mate of mine said look uh, a 70 year old friend of his had uh, said that he'd have a six weeks wait why is there such a wait why when you approach medical why isn't there like there is testing where you can go and get the thing stuck up your nose, they're all over the place. Why isn't the same availability of, of getting an injection? It seems a simple thing to me to rub a bit of alcohol on your arm and give you an injection and say bye bye. Why why isn't it why isn't there hubs everywhere? There really is going to be hubs everywhere and Robert, we're having trouble with your phone. I, I don't know what the story is. We're having trouble with your phone. Try you, again? Yeah, try again. Well, we, we are actually getting a lot better. Uh, New South Wales is on track to deliver 5 million doses in August, September. So it's really going to expand. Pharmacists are coming on board. GPs are expanding. More vaccine hubs are happening. So it is terrible. My own survey, my own osteopath, took 10 hours on the phone to get an appointment. Uh, uh, last week, I've got people in southeast Queensland who took days and days just to get an appointment, and then it was only for two months hence. So it's a real problem, and mm. it needs to be fixed, and it is slowly being fixed. 
I think five million so, well, people are going to be vaccinated in New South Wales in the next two months. Yeah, I think one of the things it seems to me, just from a cursory reading of newspapers, that, for instance, chemist shops probably don't want a lot of people going in there who may have a disease, and there's that part about it. But I can't see why you can't have one in the park over the road and have, you know, if you can get people. And there's lot, probably lots of retired nurses who wouldn't mind putting in a day. I don't know. Is there a fear of when you're working, even in PPE, that you'll pick something up? I had dinner with a retired nurse last night by Zoom. Uh, we do this every Saturday night, and uh, he's coming on board in a couple of centres. And uh, uh, it, it really is expanding. Um, the centres uh, where you can get vaccinated, you're checked first for any symptoms. You don't get vaccinated if you need a test, if you've mm. got a uh, respiratory symptom. So it's actually very safe. Mm. Uh, people aren't getting infected in lines waiting to get vaccinated because they separate, they wear masks, they, mm. they do all the appropriate things. So that's not a scare. If you go and get vaccinated, you're going to get protected. You're not going to catch an infection. I remember a time recently when there was no, seemed to be no COVID at all in Australia, and I heard Brad Haddard, who's the New South Wales Health Minister, the other day, yesterday, I think, and he, some, he was asked a question about zero COVID. And he said, well, I'm, that's, that's my hope. Is, is there any hope to get back to what we, we all remember as life before this virus came around? Is there any hope of that? I think there still is. Um, Taiwan did, dealt with an alpha outbreak and they were having four or 500 cases a day for, for 10 days. And now they're under 10. Uh, that was in uh, May, June. And now in um, August, they're under 10 cases a day. Of course, that was alpha, not as bad and not as transmissible as Delta. It's a much bigger challenge, but we're doing more and more. And we're learning, actually, from every case we get, we discover how they were exposed, how they were transmitted to. And by shoring up those gaps, those places where it isn't working, actually, you know, in the uh, local government areas where they started the lockdowns, the numbers are going down, eastern Sydney, Southwest is starting to go down. The problem is that it's spread to other uh, local government areas. And so it's not as if we're, we're out of control. We're actually in good control and improving control in many parts of Sydney. But we've then got Canterbury Bankstown or Penrith or Nepean, these other places where there's suddenly an explosion. So people have to stop moving around. They have to observe the rules. And it's not that we don't have good rules. We need to have people to comply with the rules. Mm, that's that's always been the problem. Now, tell me about spreaders. And uh, time was when, I mean, the thing that I find about this is people criticise everybody, and I think that's wrong, whether you're, it's Daniel Andrews or Scott Morrison, I don't think they're to blame at all. This is a whole new thing. Even your health people, they, you know, that we're all learning and and everybody's learning. And, and we were told that it was all about cleaning the desks and and now we find it's really in the air and, and, and the other things is, you know, with Zeneca, AstraZeneca and all that sort of thing. And, and before young kids weren't getting it and all that sort of stuff. Now we're injecting, um, we want to inject everybody above the age of 12, I think. Yeah, well, look, we're all pulling together and what we need is a national and war cabinet, just like the Second World War, where mm. both sides, federal and state and liberal and labour, all pull together and stop bickering and stop exactly. fighting. And exactly. If we pull together, we could really do something. It's like the Olympics. Mm. You know, we, we do our very best together. And the grace of those athletes who've been accepting defeat or third place, you know, they're just so beautiful. And we can do that as a nation. We can really pull together and stop bickering and we can really achieve something. It is defeatable, but the immunisation approach is critical. 
And if we can get uh, by the end of September to 70% and by the end of October to 80%, we can do that. We actually can control it through the combination, a multi-pronged approach where we deal with the transmission, we deal with masks and testing and tracing and all those things, but we also get vaccinated. And the combination is the way to win. And who are the people most likely to spread the disease in terms of who, who would have it maybe and uh, don't know it and spread it? Yeah, the spreaders are largely uh, much older teenagers, people in their 20s and 30s. So they're much more social. Uh, they're much more likely to be in the community and they're much less likely to realise they're infected because most, most of them, when they get infected, have next to no symptoms. So they can spread it without realising. So if you have any symptom, a sore throat, uh, a cough, a fever, get tested. Um, but don't forget, we have the at-risk people in their 50s, 60s, especially their 70s and 80s. If you're a relative of them, if you're a nephew or a, a daughter, go and get your uh, older relative, uh, talk to them and get them vaccinated. Help them book an appointment. Do the work for them. Spend two hours on the phone and find a place where they can get vaccinated, a local GP or a vaccine hub. Um, Professor, it's lovely to talk to you. I think last time we spoke, we were talking about um, Spanish flu, weren't we? Because it was 100 yes. years, I think, in 2019. And uh, this yes. is a lot like that. But uh, let's hope we get out of it sooner or later. It just disappeared. No chance of that with this, is there? Quickly? Well, it didn't quite disappear. We still have that same flu and it caused um, the Spanish flu and the same virus actually caused 2009 pandemic. We will get out of this corona. What's going to happen is the virus will become more like a cold. It will evolve. It will remain transmissible and even more so perhaps, but it will evolve over the next few months and years to something that's less nasty, more like a cold. Robert, thanks very much. We'll keep in touch with you and lovely to talk to you. Thanks, Maka. Good to be with you. This is from Yvonne, Yvonne Hill. She says, My late husband, David Hillen, spoke with Yumaka by satellite vote from the la phone by the uh, last point north that Burke and Wills reached in 1861. I have now finished editing David's book, which solves the mystery of how far um, north Burke and Wills reached with anecdotes about our quest by his long-suffering wife, that's me, who wouldn't have missed the adventure for quids. And it's about to be printed. I thought it would be nice to chat to you, says Yvonne Hill, and she's on the line. Good morning, Yvonne. Hello, Ian. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Uh, and it's very nice to um, hear from you because um, I always remember the call of, from David Hillen. It's one of the calls, you know, I remember a lot of calls because they're, interesting, unique, and they're different. And his call certainly was different. Um, and that was, that was when? 1997? Yes, 1997. We flew in, in a helicopter and sat on a sand hill and David spoke to you via satellite phone. Yeah, I know. And how did this all start? How did he become obsessed with Burke and Wills, or particularly Wills, really, wasn't it? It was really Wills because David himself was a surveyor, as was Wills. And so he, um, he got very interested because we were in far north Queensland sitting in our boat in the Bino River. Um, the Bino. And the fish, yeah, the Bino River, which is um, the next one west from the Norman. Um, the fish weren't biting. And so David was idly speculating and, and he looked at the sandhill on the bank and he said, I wonder whether that's where Burke and Wills got to. And that set him off on a quest. 
So when we went back to Adelaide where we lived then, he read every single thing he could find out. <laughs> <laughs> he had an extensive library, I can tell you that. And um, so that set us off on a quest for the next 18 years to mm. track Burke and Wills and we'll walk in Will's footsteps in particular to see how close they actually got to the sea and to dispel some of the myths which surrounded their their trip mm. and a lot of the um, things that were said about Wills which were unkind and untrue. Yeah, it's amazing. Isn't it amazing how things um, just start? Now, you just said something to me just and I thought, imagine fishing, you and I, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, wherever you are in Australia, just imagine sitting in a boat on the Bino River up there in the middle of nowhere where we've never been fishing and how things start. That caused David Hillen to start a quest. I'll um, I'll play. I When you sent me this email during the week, I thought, yes, and I went back and found the, <laughs> the interview with David and I'll play it for yes. you. Um, and Thank you. Uh, David passed away uh, some time ago. Yes, in 2016, he had a big uh, battle with Parkinson's and that's um, part of the reason that he wasn't able to actually finish his manuscript properly for publishing. So well, I've you, taken that on. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, you have a listen to this and uh, ladies and gentlemen, I boys will. and girls around Australia, just have a listen. This was David. This was a call and I said, G'day, this is Macca and this is what happened. Hi, Macca. This is David Hillen calling to you from up near the Gulf of Carpentaria. David, you better tell us all about it. Well, I'm sitting on a sand hill with one of these satellite telephones beside me in an extremely isolated place in a very close vicinity to Burke and Will's Camp 120, which has never been found before. It's on their final two-day dash to the Gulf, and it's the scene of a lot of mystery of really what happened to them. 26 kilometres north of Camp 119, 123 kilometres from Carumba by road, 18 kilometres from Carumba by air, and we're just 21 kilometres short of the sea. What's your profession, David? You're not a surveyor by any chance, are you? Yes, I am a surveyor. I've been spending a bit of time up here in the last few years, and I got sort of mildly interested, and then I became addicted to it, and it's been an obsession. Nobody's been able to decipher Will's notes before, and I finally cracked it. We're right on the bottom end of the escarpment of the Stokes Range, with a correct distance north from the creek crossing, as per Will's notes. Right adjacent to a freshwater lagoon would have attracted them to stopping that night uh, with Billy the horse. I mean, they needed feed and shade for him and water for him. Billy the horse? Yeah. Well, Billy, I'm really attached to Billy uh, because eventually they had to eat him. About another six weeks after they were here, uh, he met that fate. I found out a terrific amount about uh, Wills and I feel as if I know him like a brother. I know things about him that he didn't know himself, uh, like I know that his pocket watch that he was carrying while he was sitting here in this place was 14 seconds out, and no fault of his, uh, but they couldn't find out with the technology of the time. Was Burke uh, had the big ego, and did they leave Melbourne with writing desks and all that sort of stuff and a huge entourage? Uh, it was a fairly big convoy that left Melbourne, but I haven't really studied that part. I've mm. only been looking virtually 300 miles short of the Gulf, so I took in that period and I studied that whole area to... Uh, determine what uh, their habits were, what their accuracy was, how reliable they were, and uh, all the information I gained from that I've used to deduce where they came up here. And the final thing that really helped me was uh, technology such as uh, GPS, 
aerial photographs. The aerial photographs um, really clinched it in the end, and uh, when I realised exactly where it was, I just really couldn't believe it. It was fairly extreme in what I did. Uh, one of the factors of uh, the stories about them was tide levels, and the tide would have stopped them, and I went to the Flinders University uh, tide section in Adelaide, and they computed the tides for me on those days in 1861. Uh, that was a factor in uh, determining what they could have done and what they couldn't have done. So how far from the coast are you? Why are the tides important? We're 21 kilometres from the sea, three miles south of here, which is going back to uh, Will's terms, which is about four and a half kilometres. He recorded that he went across a creek that uh, was subject to tidal influence, and mm. that is absolutely correct, and that's the Magara Creek. That was the first time they struck the seawater. But from here north, they've got escarpments beside them. You just climb 20 metres above us here, and you can see three or four kilometres north. They're just skirting exactly along the edge of the mangroves, so they've really got their trip under control. Astounding. They're astounding indeed. That was David Hillen. I'm talking to Yvonne Hill, who's uh, David's wife. David passed away uh, some years ago. But he really was obsessed, wasn't he, Yvonne? Um, that's a lovely story. And when he said, oh, look, I, I feel I know Will's better than he knew himself, that's really what killed me. When he, when he said that, that all those years in 97, I thought, my God, um, this is, we've got to hear more of it. And I subsequently talked to him again, I think, um, some years later. But, um, but anyway, so Yvonne, you finished his book, which he started writing, and, and that's going to be available soon. I bet that's been a task too for you. Oh, it, it's been a labour of love. Um, what I've had to do is to try to make some of his very technical writing a bit more readable and understandable for the general public, and I think we've succeeded in doing that, judging by what um, my reviewers have said. Mm. Um, the book I've called Walking in Wolf's Shoes, which is what David practically did so mm. he knew not only knew about his pocket watch he knew about, about his shoes having walked in them yeah um so it's um i've also added a lot of stories about our adventures i describe myself as a long-suffering wife but i have to say that i wouldn't have missed the adventure for quids <laughs> like uh fishing in the bino river of course things like that yeah oh yes well you you, you know you're miles away from anywhere and I he know. actually <laughs> He actually worked out a way to get into the mouth of the bino, which had lots of um, sand drifts in it, and drew up a chart. And we could go into the mouth of the bino at very high speed very early in the morning, and we surprised a few professional fishermen along the way because (laughs) (laughs) because it was very easy to get grounded if you weren't too careful. It says here, the couple marched over unexplored mountains, crossed rivers and creeks, and chopped their way through dense bush. They traversed very remote areas, and in the process had to avoid snakes, wild pigs, and vicious insect bites. So, Tell me about it. The midges up there are terrible. Oh, aren't they terrible? <laughs> we ended up making friends with lots of station owners. They love learning about the history we were uncovering, and many of them collected my photographs. You're a photographer. Um, it's one of your talents, Yvonne? Uh, yes, I took up photography fairly late in life, and I really blame David for that because he'd find a blazed tree, hand me his old Minolta and say, please take a picture of me with this blazed tree. So eventually, when I started noticing some of the lovely birds in the trees and the beautiful scenery, <laughs> I decided to get my own camera and it went on from there. Yeah, and it's interesting too, isn't it, that I think in some ways um, you can get somebody who's really passionate and really wrapped up in a, in a subject and they'll write a book, but it's really, um, 
it really needs someone like you, who's um, a layman, a layperson, if you like, um, to just add those little touches that make it uh, livable and understandable to ordinary folk like us. Yes, I, I think that's right. One of one of the things that one of the reviewers said, the photographs by Yvonne and her stories of what happened to them along the way make you feel you're right there with them on the adventure. Yeah, well, so, um, and you yeah. can understand, you know, when we get a call here and there's a bloke in a helicopter and he's on a sand hill. Um, you know, it's, <laughs> someplace it's a bit up, unusual, isn't it? Well, yes. we we'd get, we get always used to get calls like that from time to time not so much now because not many people are out exploring but they still are we i remember we landed at um popel's corner po- or purple's corner oh, yes. the, and yeah, yeah. and we found a bloke out there you know wandering around um and yeah, i yeah. think he was a, a solicitor or a lawyer um and um but he took his time off and he would go out uh, prospecting and just looking around australia and he was out in the middle of nowhere and 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 they just get obsessed. People just do, you know, when you're fishing in the Bino yes, River yes. and then whatever happens. Yeah, <laughs> what happens? yeah and, and co- country people are absolutely wonderful. That's, that, and, the, and, you know, there is so much to see and do in Australia. That's what's so amazing about the place. Country people are open and friendly and they welcome you and, and they're just so down to earth. It's just quite incredible. So, <laughs> so, um, David wanted to find where Burke and Wills's last camp was, and they were close to the top, yes. weren't they? And um, and I suppose he's got yes. great respect for for both of them. Yes, he he has, particularly of Wills, because um, he felt an affinity to Wills, and so he was the one that he really focused on. Um, go on. You know, I was just going to say that I remember there's a poem written by our lovely friend Timoshenko Aslanides about about um, Robert O'Hara Burke, how he dug a bath in his backyard, which was facing, I think, north or south. Or, I can't remember. It was just dug it in the thing, and he used to sit in there in the nude and have baths in his backyard. <laughs> and then he rode across um, some, you know, 20 or 30 miles away to the house of the judge who he didn't like because he was a policeman, I think, uh, Burke. And, um, yeah, yeah, and, and he yeah. used to undo his gate and swing on his gate um, <laughs> as an act of defiance <laughs> or something and then go back home and sit in his bath. Can I tell you a story about Gates that um, I've I've told the story in the book, but um, we went to the Saxby Rodeo rodeo once from uh, one of the stations and they had given us directions to go across the stations through all of the back tracks. Mm. So um, I was delegated the job of opening and closing the gates. As you know, you, you always leave the gates as you find them. So this particular gate, I jumped out and opened it and um, David drove through and it was try- it kept trying to swing back shut and I was thinking to myself, ah, that'll make it easier to close it. I'll just let it go. So let it go, I did. Uh, unfortunately for me, there was a trailing bit of wire that hooked under the cuff of my jeans and upended me in the dirt. <laughs> and as- <laughs> most undignified. And as you do, you, you quickly look around in case anyone's watching. And of course, out there, and <laughs> there was nobody watching. And David wasn't looking in the rear vision mirror. So I rolled about in the dust a bit and laughed and then closed the gate and got back in the car as if nothing had happened. <laughs> it's a great, uh, yeah, great learning experience out there. Now, I'm talking to Yvonne yeah. Hill. She's written um, or completed a book that started by her husband, David Hillen, about Burke and Wills called Walking in Wills' Shoes. Um, when I rang Yvonne yesterday to say, would you like to talk to us about this lovely story? 
she said, look, I can't at the moment. I'm just, um, um, I'm just at the counter. And when I rang back, she said, I was just getting an injection in my thumb. Uh, tell people why you were getting an injection in your thumb, Yvonne. Oh, the joint's worn out. Why? And um, the, the reason that the joint is worn out is that I was an Olympic rifle shooter and I used to train hours and hours and hours. And in the process, wore out the joint in my thumb. So now I'm paying for it. <laughs> what have you thought about uh, Tokyo? And have you watched much, much of that? Oh, yes. I, I've certainly been watching it. And haven't our athletes been doing well? It's just just amazing. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, um, uh, uh, and it's lifted everyone's spirits when we need spirit lifting. Where, you're in Brisbane, aren't, aren't you? Yes, I am. So you're and, locked and down. And we've just got the games for 12, for um 32, yeah. so I'll be 95 then, so I expect to be in the stadium watching. <laughs> <laughs> Not competing. Now, oh, heavens no. Now, can I just, Quick, go before you go, yeah. yeah, can I give you the uh, link for any of your listeners who might be interested in purchasing the book? Yeah, sure. I'm funding it myself, so I'm hoping to break even. Uh-huh. The link is www heartpress, as in the beating heart, yeah. heartpress.net. Yeah. And there's a discount for pre-publication purchases, and the coupon is BWDiscount. BWDiscount. Spencer Turin, good morning. Good morning, Martha. How are you going? I'm going, mate. Uh, very well, mate. I, I, um, I know your mother much better than I know you, but anyway... Uh... <laughs> She yeah, no, me. she loves calling in. <laughs> oh, mate. Well, we're all very excited about um, the Olympics, I, I suspect. And and as our rowing correspondent, he thinks the Australian men and women rowers are just the ants' pants. But um, wonderful, wonderful results, Spencer. You must be over the top, mate. Uh, yeah, yeah, pretty um, pretty excited about the whole thing. Um, it was great to achieve our, our goals and, yeah just gone to represent Australia, really. And because when I spoke to your mother um, first, it was in Dungog, and she told me about her son, and and, and I didn't realise how long it, uh, ago it was because I think she said, oh, you know, I just oh, he's 19 or 20. And so when she rang the other day, I said, oh, Spencer, yeah, he must be about 22 now. But, of course, it was ten, <laughs> it was 10 years ago, 10 years ago. Yeah, time, yeah. Time flies, Spencer. I bet the... It has. What What's your last ten years been like? A bit of a whirlwind, really. Even though it's ten years. Yeah, yeah. No, it's gone quickly, but um, it's it's definitely a long journey to get to where we got to. Um, a lot of things like steps were taken along the way to get us there. So, I mean, to culminate in a gold medal was um, just really topped it off. Like, oh. you know, the journey's been amazing most of the time. It's been pretty surreal and like got to do some amazing things and represent Australia so many times on the world stage. Um, and then just to top it off with a gold medal at the Olympics was the pretty, f- pretty unreal. Oh yes. Fantastic. And, and you just see everybody at the end, at, at the end of the race. I mean, one of the things I've noticed in the high jump and they've got to keep jumping and keep jumping. And the effort, it seems to me to go into one jump is pretty yeah, pretty but, much, but they keep doing it, and 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 I think it must be as much. And I suppose it's in every spot. I watched the final of the fifteen um, hundreds last night, and they all just collapsed oh, on the thing. Unreal. And, and then the four hundred yeah. meters hurdle, and they just all collapse on the thing. And the rowers nearly just ugh, you just collapse at the end of your. It's just 
it just must you know you know and especially when you've won uh, but you can't you probably haven't got enough breath in your body to celebrate i mean when, yeah that's the thing most of the time you're um that exhausted that you are it's just elation for finishing the race to be honest and i mean that's all any athlete can ever ask for is to you know get a good effort out that they're happy with their performance um you know and hope that the results go the way that they want them to go so yeah, it's just always great to have a, like a, you know, a race where you can complete it and you can do everything you can and, and then you can be happy with your, with your result. Now, Spencer, tell me, what do you do now? I mean, you're in quarantine now. How long have you been in quarantine? Uh, seven days so far, halfway today. Are you, going, um, are you climbing the wall or where are you quarantining? Are you up in Darwin or...? No, no, we're in Haymarket in Sydney. So um, there's Just a bunch of us here mm. on ho- on in hotels along Sussex Street. Oh yeah. Um, so it's not been too too bad yet. Um, having the Olympics on, like you know, watching the high jump last night, that was amazing to watch Australia um, claim the silver there in the women's high jump, and then that was the having Mc- the Olympics on the McDermott. The, the what's the first yeah. name? Well, I forget a first name. What's the first name? Um, but just amazing to watch her. I mean, and and yeah. they're so tall, and and then they land on the, all that, all that, yeah, all that it's foam. unreal watching. It is, yeah. Isn't it? And then the fifteen hundreds and stuff, like you're saying, like incredible athletes to watch. Um, so it's been, it's been, um, it's been all right so far. Just watching the Olympics, and I've got the marathon on in the background here. The men's marathon's just kicked off. Last event of the Olympics, unfortunately. So. Um, Next yeah. week might get a bit tougher <laughs> without that to watch. So yeah, well, and so what's the future? What do you do now when you when you get out of quarantine? You you don't go back into training for God's sake. Do you go back to Dungog or what do you do? Yeah, that's the plan. Um, head home and uh, see the family, catch up on some time that I've missed with them. So my sister's just had a baby, so um, it'll be awesome to spend some time with her and um, our little nephew Oladapo so it'd be cool to spend some time with the family and just catch up on on time lost so, so that's the main thing at the moment. Yeah I'm talking to Spencer Turin ladies and gentlemen and I first met him by his mother who in Dungog we did our program in Dungog and and she came along and she said Ian um, my son rows you know he's rowing and he's a good rower and he might row for Australia and he's and that's all happened um, and I think at the time you were about 19 or 20. You're an old man now. You're 28 or 20, 29. 29, <laughs> almost 30, 30 in August. So. Do you go yeah. Do you go to Paris? Is that the next, is that, you know, is that sort of a plan or you don't think about that or you're, you're going to continue rowing or what's the story? Um, never say never. Um, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule it out completely, but I'll take some time off now and think about um, it think about it but yeah. yeah like i mean just you can you can keep rowing into your 30s so um your base and stuff your aerobic base gets better and better as you get like older so things like that but it's more about the body and the mind at that point um, yeah. trying to keep the body in good shape and the mind wanting to keep going well so, i can't remember an olympics where australia needed an olympics much greater than this last Olympics in Tokyo. I think there's a lot of criticism about it going ahead. But in terms of our, um, what's the term, uh, gross national happiness? In terms of our gross national happiness, I reckon it's just been a ripper, Spencer. And the fact that you and 
Others, many others, have won gold medals and silver and bronze. It's just been the icing on the cake. But, but um, yeah, our, our... definitely unreal to be a part of that. Like, um, you know, like you say, just, just it's great to that the Japanese people could host the event. I'm like so grateful to them that they pushed ahead with it and that they are doing so well on the medal tally as well. You know, like the Japanese, they're killing it in that sense. So, um, I mean just stoked for them because they're getting some reward for you know putting the event on and making so many of their their country happy and their athletes happy like mm. helping them fulfill their their lifelong dreams and represent their country and yeah our, successful for our, their country so. our rowers and sailors and skateboarders and swimmers and what about was it peter bowl the 800 metres, what a... what a Oh, unreal. Inspirational young man. Yes, like, exactly. Yeah. I mean, just good for the psyche of the whole country. I just think it's just yeah. fantastic. Spencer, yeah. I'll meet you sometime. Um, yeah, that'd be good, yeah. <laughs> that'll be good. Uh, so what I wanted to do when I grew up and got older, I wished I'd have been a rower because I found out my grandpa was a... Pretty, you know, he's a pretty handy rower, and um, yeah, and it just seems a lovely sport to me. You know, even if you're not winning Olympic gold medals, just to be out on the water at five in the morning, and yeah, there's, there's something special. Yeah, it's just spe- a, it's a good community to be a part of. To be honest, like um, just the the people you meet, everyone's so genuine. Um, so, and you make lifelong friends out of it. You know, down at my club at Sydney Rowing Club, like. It feels like a second home down there. So, Spencer, do you ever get just stick with you forever? Yeah, do you ever get to meet Gina, Gina Reinhardt, because she's a great sponsor of uh, the rowing. If... Yeah, she's a great ambassador for our sport. She um, she supports us. She comes to like the uh, end of year functions and stuff like that, the rowing awards dinners. So she's there for those, and she was there at the um, at the airport in Rockhampton, um, seeing all the swimmers. Um, in the rowers and some of the other sports off. So, there yeah, she's been great for the sport. Like, she gives giving back to us and helping us, um, you know, stay in the sport longer and supporting us to, you know, go and try and achieve our dreams. So, for all, yeah, and be for, grateful to her, yeah. And for all the athletes, I think, um, medal winners or not, I think they're all grateful. They would be all grateful for the support that um, all Australians are given. It's been, it's just been a win-win for everybody. Um, and, oh, definitely, and, yeah. And, it, and Like you say, medal winner or not, like I've, last Olympics I went and um, came home without a medal and this time I was lucky enough to achieve my goal. So, I mean, it's just like if you go, it's, it's an amazing achievement no matter what. And all and all the hard work, um, I think, would seem to all the athletes would seem worth it now, regardless of the result, because of all the goodwill that's been generated. Oh, definitely, yeah. No, it's been um, the support we've received from like everyone in Australia is like it's a, it's amazing and it's kind of surreal that like you see so many people get behind you and um, support you and like people you've never met before, but everyone comes together like as a country and you know breaks down a lot of barriers um so it brings brings the nation together so it's it's awesome to be a part of that and part of australia's most successful olympic team ever it looks like fantastic spencer look i could give out i know you've been good this week because you've been watching the olympics but you might you might uh 
hit the wall next week, but I could give out your number and you could Australia would love to talk to you. <laughs> but I won't I won't do that, Spencer, but I'm they would be dying to talk to you, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure. Um but look I'll give you a ring during the week and see how you're travelling, okay? Cheers, mate. Good on you. Good luck, mate. All right, thanks, Marco. See you bye. Talk to you later. bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.